the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. See, John refused to baptize these men because he knew, based on their behavior, that they had not repented. They hadn't changed. There was no fruit in their lives in keeping with what they said was repentance in their hearts. Repentance. We don't hear much about it these days on radio, TV, or even in many churches, but it's a major theme in our Bibles. So that's our current study here on Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today, Pastor Steve will wrap up this brief series of lessons from Psalm 51 as he deals with the critical subject of the effect on our behavior when we truly repent of our sin. We'll see how David's repentance led to a whole new focus and purpose in his life and how we can apply David's lessons to our own situations. We begin today with a scene described in Matthew chapter 3 where John the baptizer was baptizing and calling for repentance. And then some of the religious leaders showed up. Let's see what John thought about repentance and how it should show in our lives. However, listen, John was not a pushover. Not a pushover in the sense that everyone who came to him and said, I've repented, he just automatically baptized them. No, not at all. John demanded to see some good deeds as proof that true repentance had taken place in the heart, especially when he had doubts about that. When he didn't see the fruit of repentance in someone, he just refused to baptize them. didn't matter who they were. We see this in the case and the day when some Pharisees and Sadducees, Jewish religious leaders, came to John requesting him to baptize them. We read about this in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 5. It says, Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers. I mean, talk about not being politically correct. You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, notice this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is is able to raise up children to Abraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. He means judgment. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Once again, speaks of bearing good fruit. See, John refused to baptize these men because he knew, based on their behavior, that they had not repented. They hadn't changed. There was no fruit in their lives in keeping with what they said was repentance in their hearts. Now, why they wanted to be baptized by John, we aren't told. Probably, though, is because they were trying to gain favor with the people by cashing in on John the Baptist's popularity. He was very popular, and so they probably wanted to align themselves with him and say, hey, we want to be popular too. But for whatever reason they wanted to be baptized, John just refused to do it. 
Why? Because there was absolutely no evidence that they had repented of their sin. They were the same old cold-hearted religious phonies that they had always been. Now, in Luke's gospel, he tells us about this very same incident that Matthew does. However, Luke takes it a step further. He tells us something that Matthew doesn't. He tells us that after John spoke of the lack of fruit of repentance in these men, that others spoke up, people who heard this. Others asked him what kind of of fruit of repentance they should have in their lives. And in every case, John tells them that repentance demands a lifestyle change that is demonstrated in godly behavior. Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 10. And the crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? In other words, this is what you told the Pharisees and Sadducees, but what, what should we do? What fruit should we bear? He would answer and say to them, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. He who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Be content with your wages. Now, notice in every one of these cases, John told them that if they were truly repentant, then it would show up in the way that they behaved. And he gave them guidance on that. So as, whereas they had been selfish before, after repentance, they would be generous in sharing their material goods before they were selfish. Now share with others. Whereas there had been dishonesty in collecting taxes before, after repentance, there should be absolute integrity and honesty. Whereas before, with some soldiers, they would have robbed the people because they had low wages and this was an opportunity to to make some extra money. After repentance, they wouldn't do this and they would be content with their wages regardless of how small it might be. Now, this doesn't mean, this is the balance, this doesn't mean that those who repent never have struggles with the same sin that brought them down in the first place. doesn't mean that. But at least they make an effort to change. At least they show some progress in sanctification. That would be part of the fruit of repentance. See, the point is this, where there is genuine, valid, God-inspired, God-created repentance, there will always be righteous behavior that follows because those who repent produce, as Paul put it, deeds appropriate to repentance. Now, certainly true in David's life. Now, let's look back at the verses that I said I want to leave for a few minutes because in these verses... David speaks of the changes that he's going to make as a result of his repentance. We find him making certain, really these are vows, which are promises made to God about what he's planning to do once the joy of salvation has been returned. First of all, in verse 13, he says that he's going to teach transgressors the ways of God. He says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. David says that once the joy of God's salvation has been return to him. He's going to make sure that people who have been in the same boat as he has, 
transgressors of God's law. He's going to teach them God's ways so that they'll be converted. By converting means turn back, turn around to the Lord, go back to God. Now, what, what does all this mean? Well, it means that David has learned a great deal during this terrible ordeal in his life. He's learned a lot through this troubling time. He's learned about what? He certainly has learned about God's holiness. He's learned about God's discipline for unconfessed sin. He's learned about the need to be honest with the Lord. He's learned about not covering up sin. He's learned about God's mercy and forgiving him, and on and on it goes. There's been so many lessons that David has learned, and he's going to pass these on to others who have sinned. All these lessons he's learned about God through this very excruciating ordeal in his life so that they will repent and turn back to the Lord. And we would assume that David did this on a personal level as he taught people, but also through the Psalms. Not only Psalm 51, but Psalm 32 is also part of this. David speaks of the blessings of being forgiven by God. He also speaks in Psalm 32 of the discipline of God. It's about the same experience that Psalm 51 is talking about. And listen, the fact that we are learning about repentance from David right now as we study Psalm 51, 3,000 years after David wrote it, it tells us that David did fulfill his promise to God, the promise that he would teach transgressors like us the way back to God. Now, folks, I want to stop here for a moment to point out to you an important truth that we see in David's actions, and the truth is that God uses people who have fallen into sin. And he uses them to bless others. Listen, if God can use David, who committed adultery and murdered a man, then he can certainly use you regardless of what you've done in the past. Consider, for example, the apostle Peter. What what did Peter do? He denied the Lord. I mean, the man cursed. He, He was vehement in his denial of Christ. And yet Jesus had told him in Luke chapter 22, before it all happened, he said, Peter, I want you to know Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. No doubt referring to his crisis of denying Jesus. But the Lord immediately told him, but I've prayed for you. Your faith will not fail. It'll be shaky, but it won't fail. And then he said, and once you have turned again, meaning once you've repented, strengthen your brothers. Peter, I'm going to let you go through this. You're going to learn a lot of lessons then strengthen your brothers, because you're going to be able to teach them. That's exactly what Peter does. And what he did, his first letter in particular, strengthens the faith of his persecuted brothers. That's what 1 Peter is about, persecution. He's strengthening the brethren. So listen, no matter what you've done in the past, whether you've committed adultery or murdered anyone or blatantly denied Jesus, once you have repented, there are lessons that God has taught you from his word that you need to pass on to others because you have learned so much from this experience, God's mercy and tenderness, love and kindness, as well as his discipline, his unbending standards. You need to pass those on to others who are struggling with the same things. So don't let your past defeat you. Don't let it silence you as if, well, I blew it. I have nothing to say. No, you have a lot to say. Speak up and share what you've learned about God's ways so that others will benefit from those lessons and they'll turn back to God in repentance. You can have a marvelous ministry. 
what David did. But teaching sinners isn't the only change that David promises God that he's going to make. In verses 14 and 15, he says that once the Lord has restored him, he's going to notice, he's going to sing of God's righteousness, and he's going to declare his praise. He says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Now, what is this about? In asking God to deliver him, notice from this expression, blood guiltiness, David is referring specifically to the murder of which he was guilty of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. David murdered the man. And what David is asking God is that he would save him from the penalty of murdering this man because the blood of this man was on him and he knew it. And he knew that under the Mosaic law, the penalty for murder was death, capital punishment. That's what amongst many places Leviticus 24:17 says if a man takes the life of any human being he shall surely be put to death yet God did not take David's life why because he sovereignly chose to be gracious to David by sparing his life the Lord graciously released David from paying for Uriah's death with his own life even though the law required his death. But this is God's prerogative. He is the lawmaker. He can be merciful to those he chooses to be merciful to. And in David's case, that's exactly what he did. We don't have that prerogative, but God does. That's what he did with David. And David knew that God had been merciful to him. That's why he says in verses 14 and 15 that he's going to sing of God's righteousness and praise him. In other words, he is so overwhelmed with God's righteous mercy in forgiving him that he's going to praise him for being so kind to him. God had been kind to David. Folks, when you have experienced God's forgiveness, you can't help but praise him. Don't let the shame of your sinful past keep you silent about God's forgiveness. Open your mouth, praise him for being so gracious to you. That's one of the fruits of repentance, worshiping God by praising him for his mercy, which is righteous. Note this, though. When you worship God, you have to worship him out of the right inner heart attitude. That's what he demands. David describes what that attitude should be in the next two verses. Very famous verses, but I want to clarify them. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, in telling us these words, you have to be careful that we don't misunderstand what David means by this. He can't possibly mean that God does not delight in the very animal sacrifices that he established under the law and told the Jewish people, this is what you are to offer to me. Can't be saying you don't delight in that because God established it. What David is saying is that God does not delight in animal sacrifices offered by someone who doesn't have a broken and a contrite heart. In other words, God requires that those who worship him, those who bring in the Old Testament context, bring their animal sacrifices to him, worship him with humility and brokenness over their sin, that is a fruit of repentance. He doesn't want simply an animal sacrifice about their sin, but there's no brokenness over their sin. That's the whole point of an animal sacrifice. 
See, one of the changes that ought to be evident from your repentance is a new humility. It's one of the proofs of repentance. And why is this the case? Because when God brings you to the point of repentance, he's broken your stubborn will. He's brought you to the end of yourself. That certainly was David's experience. His pride had been crushed. God had shown him exactly what he is. He's not an exalted king who can take any woman that he he wants, take any life of a man that he wants. God has shown him. He's not that. What is he? He's an adulterer. He's a murderer. He's a rebel. He's a depraved sinner by nature. That's what David is. There is no room for pride when you see the truth about yourself. That's exactly what happens when you repent. You are broken. So if you've really repented, then it's going to affect your pride. You'll be more humble, more aware of your sinfulness, more conscious of God's mercy in your life. So David has told us about three changes in his behavior since he repented. He's going to pass on to others what he's learned about God's ways. He's going to praise God for his righteousness. He's going to have more humility and less self-will as he worships God. But there is still one more thing that David needs to do as a result of his repentance. This is very interesting, verses 18 and 19. He says, by your favor, do good to Zion. Zion is Israel. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you'll delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, at first glance, these two verses may look out of place. They may look like they just don't belong in this psalm. After all, they are about Israel's welfare, about the security of the city of Jerusalem, building up the walls again, animal sacrifices brought by the Jewish people. But this whole psalm isn't about that. It's been about David's personal repentance. So what are these verses doing here? In fact, they seem so out of place that there are many scholars who have suggested that they were added later on, that they're not even David's words. That's not necessarily the case, because they do fit quite well in this psalm if we understand who wrote it. It was written by David when he was the king of Israel. And as the king, he was very concerned about the welfare of his kingdom, and for good reason. See, David was very aware that his conduct as Israel's leader, had a negative effect upon his nation. In other words, his sin directly impacted God's blessings upon the entire nation of Israel. The nation was vulnerable to attack and not as righteous while he, their leader, was in a state of unrepentant sin. So what he's actually asking God to do, now that he has repented, is to build up and to strengthen his country, the covenant people, in particular the city of Jerusalem. Build the walls around so we'll be protected. Spiritually, he wants his people renewed so that the Lord would delight in their sacrifices of worship. Now, how does all this apply to us? Because after all, we're not kings of a nation. We're not leaders of a country. No, but you do lead somebody. You do lead somebody, whether it be your family or some ministry, There's always someone who's looking to you for an example. And in that sense, you are a leader. And if you set a bad example for them by your sin, then it does negatively affect them. Listen, no one sins in a vacuum. You may think that your sin doesn't hurt anybody. It's just my choice. 
But you're wrong. It does hurt others. It does affect others. But one of the evidences of true repentance is that once we get our lives right with God, we care about others. We care about the damage that we've done to those we lead. And we turn our attention to them. And we take an interest in them. And we do everything in our power to bring spiritual healing to them, those we've hurt. In David's case, this involved praying for God to physically strengthen the defenses of Jerusalem by building up the walls surrounding the city. It also meant to spiritually renew his people, to to bring them back to a level of godliness. Now, for you, it may mean going to someone and asking their forgiveness for your poor example and praying for them to be spiritually renewed. But here's the point. In fact, the bottom line point concerning David's words in this last section of Psalm 51. True repentance brings about a change in behavior. It does produce the fruit of a changed life, a life that is now concerned about obeying God, a life that cares about other people, a life of praising God with deep humility, knowing how righteous he is and how absolutely sinful you are. Now, if this is evidence in your life, then it does demonstrate you have repented. But if not, then you still need a change of heart. It either indicates that you're a believer, someone who's really accepted Christ, but you're a believer in sin. Sin that's gotten a hold of you and you have not repented. Or it indicates that you are not a Christian and that you need to repent for the very first time by forsaking your sin to trust and follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. In either case, do what Jesus commands you to do. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's pray. If you have never repented of your sin, never, you've been living a self-centered life, focused on you, Jesus says, repent. Repent, turn from your sin of self-love, you being the center of your world, everything about you, turn away from that. Turn to him, believe on Christ, trust him, trust his death on your behalf, trust him. Learn what it means to be a true follower of Christ. If you are a believer and sin's gotten a hold of you, some attitude, some action, negativity towards other people, whatever it is, repent. Repent, and the proof of your repentance will be that it will show up in new attitudes, new behavior. Whatever your situation is, repent. Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given us as a church body to study this psalm. So relevant, so practical. Lord, like David, we say that we were shaped in iniquity, conceived in sin, We are sinners, Lord, by our very fallenness, and it permeates every area of our lives. Help us, Lord, to know the power to live godly, to know the discipline to live godly, but the power comes from you. I pray for those who have never trusted Christ, Lord, that you'll convict them of their sin and bring them to repentance. For those who know you, Lord, but have allowed sin to deceive them, I pray that they'll repent as well. 
I pray that it'll be evident by righteous fruit. And Lord, we do pray that you will help us long after we've moved on from this psalm to remember these life lessons of what true repentance means. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I have a friend whose goal in life used to be to get what he wanted, and he'd observed that tough bad guys got what they wanted. After serving in Vietnam in a Marine Corps Force Recon Unit, he became a mercenary. Part of his job, as he termed it, was, quote, causing accidents. But God changed his life in prison when he repented and trusted Jesus, and now he has gone from Marine to mercenary to missionary and serves the Lord in a radio ministry in the Pacific. If God can make that change in killers like King David and my friend, imagine what he can do for you. I'm glad we had you along today for the conclusion of Pastor Steve Kreloff's series on genuine repentance. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, a listener-supported ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, where Pastor Steve serves as the teaching pastor. You can get this whole series on CD by calling Lakeside at 727-441-1714 or download the broadcast from our website, versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Thanks for listening. See you next time as we begin another series of Bible lessons on Verse by Verse. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.